when my uh, son was in kindergarten, they did this thing, you know, hey, what do your parents do for a living? Kind of. And so my son said, my mother's a nurse. Uh, she takes care of sick babies. My wife uh, yeah. was a NICU nurse oh. mm-hmm. uh, at the time. She since retired. But, mm-hmm. um, and, then, and then he said, my dad steals things for a living, but it's okay because he gets paid for it. <laughs> Our guest today is Charles Henderson, who is global managing partner and head of X-Force at IBM. Charles graduated from the University of Texas at Austin and started his career in information security during the height of the dot-com boom. Since then, Charles and the teams he's managed have specialized in a wide array of security areas, such as threat intelligence, incident response, penetration testing, and many others. This wasn't Charles' first time speaking publicly about information security. He spoke at DEF CON, RSA, Black Hat, as well as to more than a dozen media outlets. Welcome to Austinpreneur, our show about the stories that made Austin, Texas, a global hub for startups. The show is produced by Capital Factory and hosted by me, Nick Spiller. As a reminder, by joining Capital Factory, you can plug into the ecosystem where the stories on the show were set. Learn more about us at CapitalFactory.com. I got really lucky. So when I started in the industry, there was no industry. I mean, I, I remember going out to the early days of DEF CON um, before Black Hat was even a thing uh, in, in the security industry. And we would go out to this conference and we'd get together. Um, I, 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 was in, I was at the University of Texas at the time, and I thought I was going to be a lawyer when I grew up because both my parents were lawyers, and that's just what happened. It was like, you know, sort of, you know, the, the Seinfeld joke about when you get old, you move to Florida, and that's the law. Well, in my family, you just became a lawyer, you know, um, and there was no real security industry. And what's interesting is all the people back then, you, you know, you look back at all your friends, a, a, a lot of them sort of developed that security industry. And I don't remember a time when we developed the security industry together, but it just sort of grew up around us. Mm-hmm. And, and it started anecdotally. I remember my friends getting the first penetration testing jobs and, and thinking, you know, th- this is something I can do. And then I, I remember that network turned into job opportunities. And then that network, you saw people become entrepreneurial and saying, you know, I could, I can build a better mousetrap. I could, that could be technology or I think... I have an idea of how we can service clients better, how we can make a difference. And what you saw was a lot of these people start talking to each other and it became a very supportive community. And I think one of the reasons that it was so supportive was there was there was less competition for business in those days because there was so much business to be had in such a small community, such a huge labor shortage that it just worked out well where people were inherently cooperative. In our industry, you know, it's a, it's a very tight-knit circle, but 
one of the things that I see a lot of people miss on is their ability to leverage the the circle, so to speak, as, as sort of an advice, as a mentorship project. Forget trying to leverage somebody to get you know business. Just understanding who you can go to for a sounding board, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or who you can riff with, so to speak, and. and um, I don't necessarily think there's a shortage of mentors, but I think that there's a shortage of people utilizing mentors yeah. within the industry. I think there's a lot of people that would be willing to be mentors out there, but you know, one of the things when you look at successful entrepreneurs, they have a really good circle of people that they discuss ideas with. Um, because the more you talk about an idea, the better it gets. Um, I, 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 I tell my team very often that there's two ways to talk about an idea. There's a, a way of talking about an idea where you convince yourself it's a better idea, or there's the way of talking about an idea where you're open to criticism and change of the idea, and the idea evolves. And that second discussion point where an idea evolves, that's when things get good. They get battle-tested. Um, and it's so much better to battle test an idea on the front end rather than having something um, where you, you know, you have elements of confirmation bias that build you into a bad corner. I don't know if, if the folks out there listening understand this, but the security community is not what I would consider the most socially adept industry on the planet. So the fact that they could come together and discuss these things was, I think, very meaningful. And, and what, what's interesting is I, I think there was a little bit of emulation of people that were successful. In other words, people that were successful, maybe they got ideas from people outside the security industry. They started talking to people that were successful in businesses that were maybe similar, but not in the security industry. And you saw people take note of that and say, hey, there's something there. I, I need to get help on the business side of things. I guess, you know, sort of the difference between me and the, the room out there <laughs> is that I, I came very much from the offensive side of security. Mm -hmm. Today, I run a team of hackers, uh, threat intelligence folks, mm -hmm. and incident responders. I am not only different than the rest of the room out there, but even different than my own industry in the sense that I'm, I sort of run the devil's advocate group for security. Mm -hmm. um, so you have a lot of people that make security work and I've got a team that sort of, you know, some of them point out the flaws, some of them come when security fails, but none of them really, you know, this is not a group that you call for your steady state of security. My view can be a little bit, um, unorthodox and perfect um, maybe even uh, counterintuitive at times as you're about to hear Charles's first job out of college didn't last long however the lesson he learned of not fearing failure sticks with him today so let me tell you about my first job this is a great <laughs> please, story please tell me. Um, I get this job offer in security and then I realize for the first time I'm not going to be a lawyer and or at least not yet I hadn't even settled on never, but not yet. <laughs> and so I, a friend calls me, says, hey, 
this this firm is hiring people like you. You should go talk to them. I'd go talk to them. It's a it's kind of a cool fit. They've got this really good vibe and a startup, um, and, and, and out in West Austin in the hills. And it, this was in the '90s, so like, I mean, they were doing happy hours. It was, this is cool. Yeah. And I'm like, man, this is what I want to do. And so. <laughs> I interview with them. I get get a job offer. It's more than I was going to ask for. I, I, I mean, everything is going well. Um, I start my job with them. They have a dress code. It's business casual. I just show up in jeans my first day. No one says anything, so I just keep wearing jeans. I mean, this it's it, there's, there's like '90s and '80s songs written about my my experience as far. First payday comes up, and we have a company wide meeting, and we can't make payroll because our. Uh, <laughs> Our financial backer pulled out. I never got paid for my first job. It lasted two weeks. I I did get recommendations out of it. They thought I was doing a phenomenal job for both weeks that I worked there. <laughs> and uh, so it turned out that we had um, part of the uh, backing of this company was a, 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 a German firm. And um, the Germans were familiar with my my persona at DEFCON and they um, they offered me my second job but at first I thought it was a prank because you know you get a call from somebody with a thick German accent that says that they would would like to offer you a job and you figure that it's your friends from the prank culture and the security world that are because uh, I, I think I think really I thought I had had abject failure in my life and mm. nothing was going to work out after that point because, I mean, my early 20s self, that was, that was devastating. I mean, that was a blow to the face. I mean, everything yeah, I mean, so I, good. I, I, I went from, wow, you know, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life to, wow, that only lasted two weeks. And, you know how am I going to pay rent kind of thing? And it was a great unknown. But sometimes, you know, you you look back in retrospect, that probably removed my fear of failure more than any other thing that could occur in my life. Because it it, it was very visible to all my friends. Nothing bad happened. And suddenly I realized, you know what? Failure doesn't really hurt that bad. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot worse things. You know, uh, you know I unfortunately, I, I lost my father to cancer when I was 18. That is the worst point in my life. Losing my job, it turns out, wasn't all that bad. Right. And when, once I realized that, I think I went in with, it removed that element of fear and allowed me to take chances that I probably wouldn't have taken had I not had that weird first labor experience. Right. If you're afraid of losing your job, you're fighting for survival, not excellence. If you're given permission to fail, that's when the amazing happens. That's when you're willing to take the risk. You know, you you look at like, look at a a football game. You, You look at the two minute offense and it's, they march down the field and they haven't scored all day, but in the last two minutes, they march down the field and they, they score a touchdown. It's because 
they've got no other alternative. They've essentially already lost the game, and now they're throwing caution to the wind. They're taking risks. They're back to the wall. Yeah, and they may you may throw an interception and lose the game, but you already lost the game anyway. So what does it matter? It, there's a certain freedom in abject failure. You know, you, you, you always hear these, these old adages, oh, you know, so-and-so founder didn't succeed the first time or the second time. It was the third time that they, they you know, so you got to keep trying. Well, I think keep trying is part of it. But I think also the failure prepares you to take greater risks. Charles leads IBM's X-Force, where they help clients build and manage an integrated security program, protecting them from global threats. In this next segment, Charles shares a lot of tips on handling security as a startup founder. So get ready to take some notes. I run a, a team that is very different within IBM. So I, I run X-Force. Yep. Uh, and it sounds like- Do you a, have X-Wings there? Was, yeah, you know, it sounds like it would be like superheroes and stuff. Yeah. It was actually, you know, we we're talking, you, you talk about the early brands of security. And in the late 90s, um, ISS, a company, had a group within it called X-Force, and IBM bought them. Mm. And the brand had, over the years, fallen on hard times. So they, were, they were even considering end-of-lifing the brand. And um, I just had uh, a successful exit and was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Um, my family explained that shopping on Amazon was not a career choice. Um, <laughs> And IBM called and said, hey, you know, I'd like to talk to you. And I, I was talking to all these companies at the time. And the, sort of the, the, this pitch from IBM was, hey, we're going to give you autonomy. We need to figure out what we've done with this. But we've, we've failed with our X-Force mission. And we, we kind of need to reboot it. Or... or do away with it. You know, you help us decide. And it was at that point that I realized, hey, that they're seeing the same freedom to take a risk that I saw early in my career through failure. This could be, this could be kind of cool. Because right. you know, normally you don't think of big companies taking a risk with a, a big brand. And so we I came in, rebooted the X-Force brand, started out on the offensive side with X-Force Red, um, later incorporated uh, incident response and threat intel into it as well. And you look at the traction we've gotten over the years, and it was, it, it was really, I think, a product of a fail-fast mentality in an industry that had gotten sort of conservative and a little, maybe even a little bit stale as an industry and looking at, hey, how do we, how do we not just do the same thing everyone else is already doing, but how do we evolve? How do we pivot within what's a pretty established industry at that right. point? Because right. this was in the, this was what, 2016? Mm -hmm. That was you know, 20 years after we were pioneering back in the late 90s. And I think, you know, a lot of us, maybe we'd failed to follow our own advice and take risks and whatnot. It was sort of refreshing to start taking yeah. risks again. I, I, it was exciting. Yeah. And uh, it, it was exciting too, because 
in, in many ways, it felt like we were um, we were doing a thing no one expected us to do, which mm-hmm. was build it within something, you know, a large company. Because right. traditionally, these these the types of groups that do what X Horse do were built in smaller companies that were seen as more agile, and we were proving that a big company can be agile too. Yeah. And not only that, we one of the biggest problems we'd had every time we started up something on a venture back basis was we didn't have the the funds, the backing, mm-hmm. the connections to do the cool stuff we really wanted to do. Mm. And suddenly we had these connections that IBM afforded us that were really unique. Things that we just thought of as pie-in-the-sky dreams before in terms of maybe getting access to certain types of hardware or technology mm-hmm. were a phone call away. Right. And that was unique. Right. I see a lot of startups that have real trouble selling and partnering with big companies yeah. because they don't understand how big companies work. Right. It's very difficult to convince someone of a value prop at a big company if if they don't come to the table understanding they have a need. Mm. And if you can't associate with that need, if you can't build that connection, you're, you're really wasting your time. As a small company, you can look and say, our mission is X, that is our the entirety of our mission, and everyone is rowing in the same direction to get to this mission. A large company has several missions. They have several. And what you need to understand when dealing with a large company is the individual I'm dealing with. What do they wake up in the morning thinking about when on a work day? Right. What's the problem that they're trying to solve? And how do I help them solve the problem? Don't work backwards from your product, work forwards from their workflow. Yep. And, and you start doing that and you can become much more effective, especially if you're in the more early stages. And obviously this is a lot easier for like say a services organization mm-hmm. where, or, or maybe a, you know, as a service organization where you can sort of pivot a little bit more easily. <laughs> Once you've written the code, it's, it's pretty difficult to pivot. But the second part of it is understanding that your first contact in a big company might not be your buyer. Mm-hmm. But they may know your buyer. Yeah. I see a lot of startups that waste a lot of time chasing a lead that will never materialize. Yeah. They get wrapped around the axle of, if they only understood what we do, they'd buy us. There comes a point where, you, you know, again, coming back to what do we not do? You know, is this is this tenable? Is this is this something that we're reasonably going to get in terms of business, or should we be looking at other options? Right. And and sometimes it doesn't mean that you just cut off contact with it, but you say, hey, do you know do you know other people, other organizations that might be interested in what it is we do? Do you see are there introductions you can make? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I see especially smaller organizations that get so such tunnel vision trying to sell their product 
that they never listen to the the person that they're speaking with about, hey, what is it you're trying to solve? What what is it your friends are trying to solve? Yeah. Do you know anyone? That kind of thing. That that old fashioned sort of building connection right. and, and the network. Right. The security industry keeps on moving. In fact, it's accelerating with the pace of innovation. With the age of AI upon us, we're sure to face even more sophisticated threats from efficient attackers. Take a listen to hear Charles's outlook on the next trends in information security. I think we can learn a lot about tomorrow by looking at today. And the name of the game right now is that the criminals have become a lot more efficient than the industry has. So uh, a ransomware breach, soup to nuts, a couple years ago would have been two and a half months from the point at which they got the initial access to the point they deployed ransomware. And ransomware isn't the only thing, but you can use it as a nice metric. And you you look at today, it's about four days. Wow. So the criminals have become a lot more efficient. The industry needs to gain efficiency. So the name of the game used to be trying to keep people out of your environment. I, I wrote an op-ed for the Financial Times where I said, you know, stop trying to keep me out. I'm going to get in. So when we do a red team, for instance, our our attacker is just given access to the environment. And they, what they're trying to see is, can I detect you when you're inside? It's all about detection. And if you're going from two, two and a half months to four days, um, it means you have a lot less time to detect an adversary. Yep. So in the future, as our adversaries get even more efficient, the security industry is going to have to get better at efficiencies, specifically around detection and response. Because it's not enough to know I've got an attacker in the environment to get the attacker out of the environment before they do something bad. Right. How do you make that more efficient? And I think you know, automation, AI, the, all the buzzwords that you hear, they need to stop being buzzwords and they need to be actually leveraged. Yeah. I mean, it's great to say, hey, my technology has AI. Well, how's it leveraging? Hmm. Um, what's the benefit of it? Yeah, what's the benefit? How is it making you more efficient? And I think that also we need to change the way venture capital approaches security because I think we've spent a lot of time focused on the existing markets within security. And the reason those markets, those existing markets have been successful is they're largely things that we can traditionally tackle with labor. We need to look at the things that we maybe haven't been tackling because they are not very well done by human beings and say, hey, could AI actually do this? Could automation actually do this? So start to think outside the box to build those efficiencies. AI needs to move out of the marketing tower and into the engineering tower. So let's stop talking about it and let's start actually doing something with it that is meaningful and affects the outcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Austinpreneur. Don't forget to check out capitalfactory.com to learn more about us and join our community. If you have thoughts about the show or ideas on how we can work together, reach out to me directly via email, nickspiller at capitalfactory.com. Shout out to the Capital Factory Dream Team for making this podcast possible. And special thanks to Aaron Handworker, who masterfully recorded and edited the show. Come back next week for a whole new episode. Mm-hmm.